such a gift to be able to effectively small talk with people that you know. I love it. I hate the label small talk, to be honest. I think it sort of devalues what you're doing. What you're actually talking about is connecting. It's connection talk. It's not small talk. It's the things that actually matter. The rest of it's crap, right? It's how's your family doing? How are your kids? I knew one of them was sick. Did he get over whatever he had? How is that small talk? Mm -hmm. That's an Mm -hmm. improper label to describe the things of value in the relationships we build. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Ralph Barcy and Howard Brown. Howard's the founder and CEO at Revenue.io. Ralph is the vice president of global inside sales at Trade.io. And together and separately, they're among my favorite guests to have on the show. So I'm fortunate to have them both here on this episode together. And in our conversation today, we're talking about a range of compelling sales topics, starting with how important are sellers, the individual seller, in today's sales environment in terms of how important are they in the buyer's calculations about what solution they're going to buy. You know, it's tempting to underestimate the central importance of the credibility and trust that sellers personally develop with buyers and how decisive that can be in the buyer's ultimate decision-making. We also explore the relative importance of some critical traits for sellers, such as research shows that curiosity is more important than intelligence as an indicator of success. So if that's the case, if curiosity is so important, then how are managers screening for curiosity in the hiring process? Then we dive into the topic of emotional intelligence and the role that that plays in sales. And we talk about the importance of win rates as a key metric in sales. Some sales bosses don't believe that win rate is an important metric. Others think that's crazy, including me. So we're going to get into that. So all this and much, much more. But before we get to Howard and Ralph, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it. If you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review, that'd be very helpful. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Ralph Barcy, Howard Brown, welcome. Great to be here. And uh, Ralph, you're joining us from where? Beautiful Danville, California, about Danville, 35 California. miles east of San Francisco. And so, and Howard, you're right here in from, Los Angeles, California. You're like next door neighbors to the Kardashians, aren't you? Yeah, they live a couple doors up, actually. <laughs> okay. Several All of right. them. The Kardashians and the Biebs, he's, he's close there too, right? No, nah, I think he's across the freeway. No, we we oh, we, have, okay. we have Drake and Madonna in our neighborhood. We try and stay with the old oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very cool. Ralph's who's who's in your neighborhood? E forty, uh, famous hip hop rapper from the Bay Area, originally from Vallejo. He lives a stone's throw away in Blackhawk. Oh, in Black <laughs> Blackhawk, is he a That's golfer? Right. Uh, I don't think he's a golfer. Uh, I do know he's got a basketball court in his backyard, a full-length basketball court. He's got all the logos of the Bay Area teams he follows, uh, you know, emblazoned into into the court. And uh, he's a yeah, he's a true Bay Area representative. Nice, nice. Get out there and hoop with him, Ralph. No, uh, no. He would win. Number one. Uh, (laughs) Number two. I'm five eight. You know, I'm not. I'm not very agile on the basketball court. Yeah. But where Ralph is incredibly agile is, is he's a rock drummer. <laughs> he's a, I, he's I a, rock, a rock and roller. Drummer. 
You know it. You know yeah. it. Yeah. So tell us the name of your band again. Yeah, we're called Segway. S-E-G-U-E, not to be mistaken for the thing you ride around town. (laughs) And uh, we played our first live performance in a club uh, earlier this this month. It was the first time we'd played in a club in the last six years. So it felt great to get the cobwebs dusted off and get back on the kit. And uh, we actually had a pretty reasonable crowd, all things considered. So yeah, it was really fun. That's awesome. What kind of music? Yeah, rock and roll and blues. Uh, I'd say we probably have... 60 to 70% of our music uh, is original, uh, whereas the other, you know, 30 to 40% are covers. And the covers range, you know, from bands like the Black Keys to the Hives to the good old Rolling Stones. Nice. Yeah, we're going to have to make it down to LA, Howard. You used to tour though, right? We did. Yeah, we did. Well, uh, that, let's use that term lightly. We, we definitely yeah. played the entire Bay Area, but we also went to Southern California. We played Santa Monica. We played San Diego, uh, specifically in Pacific Beach. And uh, yeah, we got around, but, but that was back in the day. Yeah, because you've been together for a long time, like, the band, right? Yeah, we formed the band in uh, 1994. So wow. yeah, we've been around for a bit. I had a full head of hair when it started. <laughs> Headbang, right? You got to have that hair going up and down. No doubt about That's it. That's right. That's right. You you rock the hair off your head. There you go. Yep. <laughs> he rocked so hard he lost it all. I love it. Yeah. Well, Howard, you're gonna see the videos. He's Ralph's gonna send them to you. They they do really do rock. And unfortunately, they'd lost their lead singer a couple years ago, who was an incredible singer. Um, but uh, Ralph helps run a foundation for uh, heart research as a result. I do. Thanks. Thanks, Andy. Uh, they're yeah. called the Gable Heartbeats Foundation. So uh, by all means, check them out. And I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a great cause. So, um, all right, we're going to talk about sales eventually here. Hey, I'd, I'd run across some research from 2015. It's been published on the H- Harvard Business Review. And I thought it'd be interesting to sort of, there it's sort of, Few key points. I'd be interested to see uh, what's what's changed, perhaps since then. Is is and this was a report uh, is authored by Frank Cespedes and Tiffany Bova, um, and one of the key points there was that B two B buyers report that compared to other sources of information, interactions with sellers are the most influential in their decision making process. Hmm. So. Has that changed? I think it absolutely has changed. I think yeah, I think uh, I think the sales rep today is more of a additional channel for the buyer. I think uh, far less influence for the most part. Now there are there the the ones that stand out that are value selling that are strategically uh, providing consultation that are able to meet the buyer where they're at, that are able to understand their business and and their competitors. Um, But for the most part, I think that the influence that the B2B seller used to yield has diminished. Just in the last five years? No, I think it's been diminishing with the advent of the internet and, and all the information that's publicly available and all the sites where people can read reviews and all the white papers where we could download from analysts. Um, but I'll let Ralph, Ralph in. 
Uh, it's tough to argue Howard's point. Uh, I do think it varies, though, depending on uh, the segment you might be selling into. Uh, in my experience, you know, if you're selling into an SMB slash commercial segment, it, it is more of a transactional sale. Uh, whereas if you're, you know, representing mid market on the high end or enterprise, you're going to have that more consultative sale. Uh, I think sales reps, individual contributors are still very influential. Um, the higher up you go in the segment, you know, the more consultative the sale is, whereas, you know, where it's transactional, they're, they're, they're kind of an extra step that's not always needed. Uh, and to Howard's point, you know, we've got this deluge of information and insights on, uh, the offerings that we're looking to invest in that, you know, we, we want to self-serve if we can, when we can, uh, so that, you know, the sales reps aren't too needed like they are in the more consultative cycle. Go ahead, Howard. You had something else? Well, I would just say, look, uh, you know, based on, uh, on the Forrester study of Rev, RevOps and intelligence platforms, they, they're saying that 66% of buyers say they're treated like a number. 59% want a faster, easier process. 83% of the journey is seller-free. And 44% of millennials yeah. want a full seller-free experience. So clearly something's changing. Wow. Well, I'd make the argument that buyers since the beginning of eternity would like a seller-free experience, um, but perhaps they're more likely to be able to get one these days. <laughs> well, how far back are you going in with eternity, Andy? Is that before you well, sold, or what, what are you saying there? <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, I think I started about the dawn of the civilization, yeah, and selling. Um yeah, I'm not sure that part's necessarily changed. I think, <laughs> again, I think you've always had the the same barriers. Can you be a value provider for the buyer? That's if you it. can't, they've, they've never had time for you. Yeah. Yeah. Who has time to be wasted, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's sort of one of the, the myths that somehow uh, younger generations have that that these interactions were different. 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, and the buyers had the luxury of time and so on and so forth. And that's certainly never been my experience. Hey, Ralph, you run a team. How, how, do, you, how do you make your uh, sellers valuable? Oh, boy, that's a big question. Um, how do we make them valuable? Um, where would I start with that one? They have to have a very clear understanding of the market that they're selling to, namely the problems that buyers are facing and paths to solve those problems. That's that's probably one of the first things we're going to do to to create more valuable sellers. Uh, we need active listeners, people who really um, you know absorb what the what the what the buyer's trying to accomplish. Uh, and you do that obviously by asking more open-ended questions versus yes/no questions. Um, I mean, it just goes on and on. Th- this could take up the whole conversation if we get into if we get into how to make them more valuable. Well, we, we can. I mean, yeah. so I, I would add something or ask you a question. You, know, you said give people more open-ended questions to ask and so on, but yep. it doesn't really address Howard's point, which is having asked it, they still have to listen. Yeah. <laughs> 
I agree. It's why it's, it's why I said they need to be active listeners. So they have to be able to, you know, prompt dialogue and and be present to what's being told to them as as a response to those open ended questions. And I think that's a good question for you, Howard. Is you know, some of the psychology training. I mean, professional psychologist. How how do we teach people really to listen? I mean, I've done a bunch of reading on this, and it's it's all over the map. Is yeah, how do you get people to be in the moment? And I said, really, they can ask a great question, but if they're not listening to the answer and processing it, then they might not as well have asked the question. Yeah, I think figuring out where someone is at, um, as opposed to projecting what you think they should be doing or where they're at is probably important. So, you know, the person asking the question should actually be interested and curious. So I think, you know, finding people who are actually curious, um, you know, and want to solve problems is a good starting point. I think sometimes you can't make people great listeners and great problem solvers. You can make people better. But if you if you are lacking general curiosity, if you don't have um, an interest in solving problems, you probably shouldn't be in sales because you're not going to be a value seller. One way I've, I've seen people improve is listening to themselves. I, I think actually studying who you are in conversations and, and what you sound like and how people respond to you, just backing up a little bit and observing yourself, right, mm-hmm. is critically important. People are, are, are shocked sometimes when they listen to themselves, when they watch how they behave. Um, there's nothing like being able to step back and observe and then put yourself in the other person's shoes. How would you feel if the person talking to you behaved like this? And mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it requires a little time, patience, coaching, um, but it, 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 you see a huge difference. And, uh, you know, as a therapist, I learned that way. We recorded my sessions when I was working with someone. I learned so yeah. much about how I moved my hands and my feet and how I followed up with questions and what made me uncomfortable. It's the same sort of thing. We're teaching people how to interact. You know, my, my kids sit there staring at their phone 24 seven. We, we, we've lost the art of conversation. We have to teach mm-hmm. people how to have great conversations, how to be conversationalists. And, right. uh, you know, it, I, I do believe that there's some amazing tools and trainers and coaches out there that can help us get there. But if you lack basic curiosity and the desire to problem solve, you're in the wrong profession. How do we screen for curiosity? I mean, this is, this is something that, that, yeah, lots of people bring up. I agree 100%. You need to be a curious, open-minded problem solver if you're going to be, I think, have a career in sales. But, yeah, I am innately curious, right? But, and, but no one even sort of bothered to test that. But I even talk with hiring managers today, and it's like, well, how do you test for curiosity? And no one's, well, I give them an aptitude test. It's like, really? And there's something else we can do? What do you got, Ralph? Yeah, my wheels are turning because I don't think we have uh, formal ways of screening for curiosity, but my wheels are turning on how we how we might be able to assess it. Uh, You know, it's almost like maybe in an interview scenario, I I share an anecdote, tell a story, uh, but I but I connect the dots for the for the um, 
candid at first saying, look, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to tell you what's, here's what's going on. Here's a scenario where we're struggling with today and just maybe gauging what types of questions they ask, how often they interrupt or if they interrupt or intervene at all are things that I'd be listening and looking for. Um, the types of questions they're asking me, how many questions they ask, and then what they do with the information that I give in response. Are they able to kind of process that in real time and then begin to prescribe? Uh, or, you know, how long does the diagnosis process actually go? I mean, I'm just trying to think how I would do that on the phone with someone, how I would do it uh, via a web call or in person uh, where I could actually quantify and, and quote, screen for curiosity. It's just, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. I think it's so needed too. Yeah. Well, I mean, cause if you ask, and I certainly have asked on this program, number of people, you know, number one trait or quality they look for in a great salesperson, it's curiosity. And yet we seem to have this gap in terms of, all right, well, how do we, how do I identify that in someone that we're interviewing and, you know, prioritize it, uh, in the interview process in the hiring process. Yeah, I also think about it. Does it make sense for me to first be curious about them and about what's going on in their world to, I don't know, maybe um, indirectly uh, prompt them to then be curious in return? Not quite sure, but it's something something I want to formalize if I can. Mm. Yeah, I, for me, curious people tend to be... Um, they love to educate themselves, right? They, they, they always are talking about some new book they're reading or some podcast that they're listening to. Um, I think that they typically ask a lot of questions of me during the interview process. So they, they turn the tables on me and they try and figure out what, what we're looking for and why, and, tell me about the position and other people who have held it. And you just, for me, I just get a sense because they immediately go into, they're interviewing me as much as I'm interviewing them. But I do find that people who are lifelong learners, people who like to talk about how they've solved a problem. I ask them about, uh, you know, something that, that um, they recently learned that surprised them. I mean, there's things you can ask people to really get them out and talk about how they learn and, and whether or not they, they have a hunger and thrive for it or, or not. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really a fascinating topic because it also ties this whole idea of intellectual humility, right? Which is, you know, this awareness that you don't know everything and being conscious of it. And... And that's you know tied to being open minded and and you know there's a professor I forget who wrote it from Harvard that had written a paper about how you know what he called CQ your curiosity quotient is much more valuable than your IQ right because your curiosity is how you navigate the world. It's funny you bring that up. I was just listening to a podcast where I heard the term BQ for body quotient. Have you heard that one? No. What is it? That's an. Uh, I mean, just how physical you are and, and expressive you are when you're asking a question and having a conversation. You know, Howard mentioned earlier the importance of kind of establishing that conversation flow with someone. And if you're looking them in the baby blues, I mean, it probably helps a lot when your whole body is present 
to, to the conversation and you're expressing yourself, you know, with the hand waving and you're looking at, you're, you know, peering into the camera or looking away to think for a minute. It just shows somebody, I think that you're really, um, being courteous and caring towards what it is that they have to say. But anyway, you, you reminded me of the whole BQ thing when you mentioned right. CQ. Well, it's the assumption there that, that by being more expressive that somehow people can read something more about you? Not necessarily. In, I just... I mean, a body language thing or... I mean, personally, when someone's talking to me, if they're just stiff as a board staring at me with zero you know, movements at all in their face or their body. I'm going to, I'm going to get a little concerned and a little, I'm going to feel a little awkward. Whereas if someone's like, Oh, I totally understand what you're saying. You know, with the waving of the hands, I'm going to feel like, okay, they're with me. Yeah. I think what you're talking about is really your ability to mirror affect, right? Like if, if you're showing frustration and anger and somebody mirrors back, it sounds like you're really upset. Or if they're excited and then they raise their voice and they're moving their hands around, that that's how we communicate as people, right? We, we, we feel most comfortable when people are mirroring us, when, when they're like us, we're all sort of tribal in many ways. If our communication is being mirrored, if we feel like we're being understood or heard, that's the kind of thing that draws us closer, builds trust, builds rapport. And I think those are the kind of things you're talking about. In addition to the fact that people like to talk about themselves. So if you can get someone to open up, if you can be curious and then connect with them, well, that's the basis of a relationship. That's the starting point. So um, yeah, definitely screening people for curiosity, ability to mirror, engage, uh, not freak you out by staring at you and not moving. Those are <laughs> critical. <laughs> Big time. <laughs> Well, but isn't one of the ways, initial ways to demonstrate curiosity, and you know, Ralph talked about, hey, let me, let me sort of do something that stimulates curiosity on the part of the person, the person of the candidate I'm interviewing, but comes through small talk. Love it. Yeah, when you Love first, when you first, talk. you know, require, you know, not require, but ask something of the other person first before, you know, talking about yourself. It's a simple thing like that. I mean, if you're looking for that, for me, that's always a, a cue when I'm talking to somebody is, you know, are they interested in me? A big, I'm a big fan of the small talk. Uh, I think it, it's underrated. You know, if I, if I run into uh, a neighborhood friend of mine at the grocery store, I mean, we're, we're going to stop for a second in the aisle and just catch up on how each other's family's doing, you know, how's work going, what's going on. Oh, I, uh, you know, we just got back from this trip, et cetera. And it's just, uh, I just think it's a, it's such a, a gift to be able to, you know, effectively small talk uh, with people that, you know, I love it. I, I hate the label small talk, to be honest. I think it yeah. it's sort of devalues what you're doing. What you're actually talking about is connecting, right? That, yeah. Yeah, that it's, it's connection yeah. talk. It's not small talk. It's the things that actually matter. The rest of it's crap, right? It's how's your family doing? How are your kids? I knew one of them was sick. Did he get over whatever he had? Well, how's that small talk, right? That mm-hmm. that that that's a, that's an improper label to describe the things of value in the relationships we build. So, how would you relabel it? Well, that's a whole nother exercise. But I like the idea <laughs> of connection talk. Yeah, um, sure. Coming up with a label. Well, I, mean, you know, I was going to say, it's sort of like, you know, people sort of downplay the importance of what they say as soft skills. Mm-hmm. And I'd read somewhere in the last couple of years, somebody said, oh, yeah, 
they're not soft. Let's call them power skills. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a great a great term to reframe it as. Yeah, they're not soft. Those are those are important. Okay, I got a label. Instead of calling it talk at all, why don't we just say connect? That's connect time. It's the time we connect at the beginning of a call. I love it. Love it. Yeah. Thanks, Howard. Yeah, Howard. Let's, thank you. Uh, yeah. Let's tell Trademark the world this. this is the new uh, the new label. Yeah. That's it. No longer small talk. Actually, we'll write a paper on it. The three of yeah. us will we'll collaborate. Sorry, small talk's gone. Small talk is gone. It's connect time mm-hmm. now. It's about right. time. <laughs> well, but there are still no shortage of sales managers that are trying to coach small talk out of their sellers because they believe that the buyer doesn't have time for it. And I don't, I don't believe that. I think it's just the opposite. I think it's more important than ever. Same. Yeah, I, I think they have. They may not have time for small talk. Depends how you define small talk. If if small talk means you're connecting with them on a human level, so that you can open up a dialogue and a conversation where you're working towards something, that I mean, call it whatever you want. That's valuable. Yeah, and I don't think you can do without it. I mean, I was just in the course of writing my latest book, looked up several, you know, researched several academic papers written on the the value of actually the necessity of small talk in establishing a connection with someone. Yeah, well, you want to trigger that the crocodile brain or or your prefrontal cortex, right? You're either going to run away from the person or you're going to move towards them, right? We we need something to go off of. I don't know who you are. Yeah. Well, you I was chuckling when you're talking about the crocodile brain, the reptilian brain because I was reading something over the the weekend, um, a paper by or an article by a psychologist uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett, I think out of Boston University, and it's talking about rethinking emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. And she's written a book about emotions, emotional intelligence, and and she says in this article that sort of the two most common assumptions we make about emotional intelligence basically are wrong and the science has proved them wrong and that we need to rethink this. And one was this idea of the reptilian brain is that neuroscience has shown that we don't have this triune brain that sort of assumed that one of the stages was uh, this reptilian brain, but, but that actually (laughs) it's more unified, I guess is, is what she talks about. Not a neuroscientist, obviously, but um, yeah, I thought that was sort of fascinating paper. It's like, Huh. I wonder how many other things are out there that, that we sort of think we know that and we sort of take for granted and that, that science has sort of shown us subsequently is is perhaps not true. I mean I remember uh I'm sure as paper. it relates to I'm sure as it relates to neuroscience quite a bit, but I will respectfully disagree with her that there are different parts of the brain. Yes, they are interconnected, but there's absolutely studies that show if you damage certain parts of your brain and you stop oh, sure. processing ability, then you go back to the things like the uh, amygdala, where it is very, very primitive. And there are parts of your brain that can absolutely handle executive functioning and, and, and relationship building. So, um, but well, again, there's lots of papers and lots of opinions, and that's why, uh, that's why yeah. people continue to publish. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. There's something that came out a year or so ago from scientists at Duke that said that you know all these behavioral studies based on functional MRIs of the brain were 
basically invalid because they've been misreading the functional MRI results. And I was like, oh, well, that's bound to have a big impact. <laughs> yeah. Where, where do we go from here with all these? That's uh, right. Well, I mean, I read a, you know, a paper two years ago by a, a economist from Northwestern, I think an economist from Northwestern, talking about loss aversion. Yeah, you know, loss aversion is sort of embedded in our whole way of looking at uh, oftentimes sales, negotiation, and so on. And same thing. He said, you know, recent research shows that that's just not, it's not a thing. Wow. And it's like, okay, <laughs> all right. Where do we go from here on that then? Yeah, we got to start all over. Ralph, tell me about Trey. What's going on over there? You guys are building a pretty amazing engine. Uh, yeah, it's constantly evolving. Thanks for asking about Trey. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar, it's a general automation platform. And essentially, what what we help businesses with is connecting all of the uh, components of their tech stack together so they could speak to one another. Uh, and we help companies drive automated workflows from those connections or integrations uh, we connect all components of the tech stack through APIs. And um, the the company started as uh, a filter in your Gmail inbox, for example. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're very familiar now when we go into our mailboxes, we can we can filter messages and route them accordingly based on a subject line or sender, et cetera. Well, that's what Trey did initially and evolved the platform to uh, incorporate pretty much all tech stack components. Therefore, the name came about is, you know, we can offer a tray of, you know, infinite connectivity use cases. Um, So my charter there is to oversee uh, a lot of the top of funnel activities, driving the revenue pipeline, but also driving, you know, the people or talent pipeline. Uh, Been there about two years and uh, it's quite a journey. Uh, I feel like I've been there 10 years. I've only been there two. Uh, but we continue to scale the team. Uh, we're getting some really prominent, fun logos into our portfolio. We're um, really customer-focused, and uh, it's working out well for everybody. I appreciate you asking, Howard. Of course. I, the sort of low-code, no-code um category just seems like it's exploding and it makes a lot of sense, right? The ability to to change workflow based on data from any system to provide context and relevance to any stakeholder within the business makes perfect sense without having to go to a dev shop and and do it in the old school sort of way. So I, I'd love to know how are you using those sort of optimized workflows to help your sales team? How do you how do you move them to a position of uh, being that contextual, interesting, interested seller through your product. Oh, I love it. Well, wow. uh, we promised the audience this this was not teed up beforehand. This is happening <laughs> yeah, in no, real we time. Didn't talk about it at all. <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious. <laughs> so again, it's me being curious. Yeah. Well, we we're finding ourselves we're finding ourselves in the um, whole you know digital transformation movement where a lot of uh, day-to-day business processes are being moved to automation because the tools and technologies are now available to do that. And so to answer your question about 
our field organization becoming a lot more contextual, we're doing what we can to understand positive systemic impact that would happen as a result of those integrations and those workflows being built. So we're really trying to acquaint ourselves uh, at very deep levels, frankly, with all the functions of a business. We want to really understand comprehensively how each business unit operates within the business and how it interacts with other business units. Because we know if we can establish, say, an integration and a workflow at at a very low level, you said no code, uh, low code, uh, what positive impact is that going to have on other business units that are considered stakeholders in the organization? So uh, I've spoken with Andy about this before. And, you know, in, in overseeing a lot of the top of funnel uh, people who are having those initial conversations with businesses, we are trying to educate them internally by introducing people from around Trey's organization. And we host what we call Team Tuesday. And every Tuesday, a representative from finance, engineering, marketing, etc. will speak with the sales development reps in this case about what they do every day, what their charter is, what keeps them up at night, what would happen if an integration or an automated workflow wasn't in place? How would they do business without those, without those benefits and advantages? And we have found that it's really moved the needle with respect to the types of conversations that our sales development reps can have. They, they are very confident about having conversations with anyone at any level of the organization because everybody in a business needs to work from... Uh, or needs to benefit and work with uh, people in different business units. And the more we understand that beforehand, the more we can establish credibility and rapport in those early, early conversations. So those are just a couple examples of what we're doing. I I guess as a follow-up, anytime you sell to an enterprise, they want to know what the return on investment is. And so when I think about a lot of what you're putting what Trey is putting out there, it's, is it time savings? Is it reduction of workforce? Is it more efficiency? Is it more effectiveness? And then let's assume it's all of that. How do you actually measure that before and after? How do you prove the value of that sort of thing so that you can create something predictable and get people to prescribe or create more of these recipes to, to further automate across the enterprise? It's a full question. Yep. Great question. Uh, I'm going to keep it very high level, but short of an ROI calculator, uh, we are going to, first of all, assess what those key areas key areas are. And Howard, you hit it right on the head. It is actually all of the above. So what we want to find out uh, is, okay, what if we are to accomplish, what if this workflow is put in place? How will that save time? How many hours per day? Uh, will that save for this one individual? Or what would that do to your conversion rates uh, for this specific team? And we would just take it incrementally, knowing that the success we'll have with this customer is sequential. So if we can tick the box in one business unit or with one person or one team, we can then expand our footprint across the enterprise by taking that approach. Got it. Andy, I don't want to... No, no, you can... Hey, 
I appreciate you asking. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, great questions. Hey, so Ralph, a question extra for both of you is is um, just in the last several weeks, I've yeah, I get a lot of inbound requests to to be on the show, and there's been a definite uptick in in some cases, people have written books or are writing books about this about how the sales model in SaaS, you know, the SDRs, AEs, just has to change. And it's mostly written from the perspective of SDRs. I think somebody's written a book called The Death of the SDR and other things sort of along that, that trend. And, and I haven't read the books, but I'm just, you know, responding to these, these pitches I'm getting that, yeah, I'm seeing a little bit of trend. I mean, what are you seeing, Ralph, in terms of just – in your company, how are you rethinking your sales model? Or are you rethinking your sales model? We're always rethinking it. It's, um, I would argue, one of the toughest gigs in the company. You know, starting a conversation with a with a prospect that you have very high level understanding of, uh, trying to build that rapport and credibility I talked about, and then begin a diagnosis process mm-hmm. to create an early stage opportunity. Then you throw into the mix the fact that so many people now work remotely that uh, a lot of office numbers that these SDRs use to reach these prospects by phone are are a moot point. They're obsolete right. now. Right. Uh, and that leads them to get mobile numbers and people find that very invasive for the most part, you know, that you're calling me on my mobile number. I don't even know you or you're calling from an unknown number, so I'm never going to pick up. And uh, it makes it really, really difficult. So uh, we think it's really important to um, leverage the tools that we have by way of webcams these days, as well as get really, really good at your writing skills uh, because email uh, isn't dead. Uh, I think a lot of people argue that it is. I argue that it isn't. In fact, I think email is still one of the primary means of communication in business today. Uh, but email will be read if it's if it's a well written email, and mm-hmm. of course if it's a timely email, or if there's some warming up of the uh, connection in the first place by way of mutual connections, brokering of introductions, etc. So we're always evolving our business model and our go to market model based on you know how the landscape is changing with, with today's day and age. Well, are you seeing the possibility that that because uh, I know again back in people sort of sending me these these pitches and, and sort of inferring since I've read the books what they're saying is that you know we're going to shift back or do we need to shift back to full cycle sellers again? Depends. I mean, that's a. I know it's a broad be, question, but it's yeah, yeah. I think it depends. at B two C versus B two B versus yeah, B2, you know yeah vertical. Yeah, all thinking that more com- complex B two B. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, I mean, you're you're talking to somebody who's very partial to the top of the funnel activities mm. and the resources needed to to start a lot of those conversations. Uh, so, yeah, I'm probably not going to agree that you know, gone are the SDRs. We need full full cycle. And frankly, I don't know a lot of account executives who really want to do that. Well, no, I'm I'm sure that's the case. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would weigh in and say that the role needs to evolve. So the training needs to evolve. The expectations, as opposed to just 
smile and dial and, and write as many emails or do as many cadences? How about use the, the data that we have on our prospects, on our ICP, understand what they're downloading, where they're at, get involved in that value prop, like talk, you know, be that be that expert instead of just calling them an SDR. How about they're a solution consultant, right? They they can have conversations. They can't solve the whole thing and they're not going to solution the product or service, but they can have a really useful conversation and maybe inform you how you are not following industry benchmarks or how you aren't doing what the leaders in your space are doing, but they need to be trained that way. They need to have those sort of conversations where if they're calling into a business, they better understand a little bit about my business. They better understand what's going on with my competitors so that they can add value. And and I'm going to invest my time with them because they have something that I can use. And then from there, if I feel it's valuable, then I'll invest another 20 minutes and maybe an AE or somebody else. But I don't think it's that, that we need to get rid of them. We need to do a better job training them and educating them on our product, on the market, on the competitors, on the value that they can deliver. I think that's too extreme to say death of the SDR. Let's, let's, let's train them. Let's evolve them. Let's give them the power of all this technology and all of this data to do their job better. So I agree. But what's holding companies back from doing that? I mean, there's this, yeah, we've, we've you, Howard, you've seen as well as I have over the last year, the, and Ralph, I'm sure you have as well, statistics about, uh, you know, stress and mental well-being among sales reps and particularly acute among SDRs, uh, high churn rates. Uh, it's like, yeah, I mean, some companies do a great job, but it seems like it's too few. That's where I think what's really driving it. So how do we, how do we, how, what's it take to get a company to say, yeah, we're going to make this investment? And that's not just, you know, the SDRs just aren't cannon fodder. This is a career. This is a serious professional, to your point, Howard. And we're going to invest in them accordingly. Uh, I think it, it starts in the recruiting process, first of all. Uh, you have to look for that top talent by uh, taking an approach where you attract the top talent versus pursue it. So you got to be pretty specific uh, in detailing the qualifications, responsibilities, and, and the expectations in the job description, you know, you have to have more meet and greets where you uh, provide insights and information on what your team culture is like, mm-hmm. you know, what your marketplace is like, what problems you're solving to j- just to make sure that, uh, you know, at least in the first um, to, to the first degree, you're you're attracting the right talent who wants to be there, who wants to be curious, who wants to learn uh, about the problems that we're solving uh, and about the different personas that they're calling, et cetera. I mean, Howard, the way you explain it, I mean, join the party. I've, I've, I've experienced that as well uh, with the cold calls that I've received, with the cold emails I've gotten. And for a person in my position, it is it breaks my heart. It's very frustrating uh, because I feel like they're misrepresenting our profession and um, not not putting their best foot forward. Perhaps it's because they're, pressure to try to make a number, uh, you know, and try to get as many meetings as possible without just taking a minute to take a deep breath and find out, oh, it turns out I know Howard already through these two people, but I I just didn't take the two minutes to find out who else Howard might be connected to in the the market that I can maybe 
uh, get I can get an intro to him through one of them. I mean, it's just some real high level, fundamental, basic stuff that's not being done, and it it pains me to watch. I, I would add that it very much is a top down commitment, right? Mm-hmm. So if you, if you if you think about look, what are we talking about? We're talking about investing in our people. We're talking about training our people. We're talking about empowering them, right? And if you're a company that really cares about your brand and somebody's very first experience with your brand is that SDR, that's that's the experience. And if that's an awful experience, all the money you spent on branding, marketing, all that great product, guess what? out the door. So just like any other area of your business, if you're going to invest in training and education and improvement and growth, shouldn't you invest it at the very, very, that's your window. You walk down, you know, fourth Avenue or whatever, that is your window. So it's really important that we don't just look at them as the low man or the low woman on the totem pole. They are the very first contact with your customers and your prospects. And guess what? If they're not better than the next one, they're going to go with your competitor. Build a better product. It doesn't matter if the story that's being told and the vision is being articulated through somebody who is incapable. I agree 100%. I'm going to give you a big hug when I see you next, Howard. (laughs) I I look forward to it, man. It's been a long (laughs) while. No, I agree 100%. You know, they're the tip of the spear. And uh, I do agree that it is a top down decision. And uh, that, you know, credit needs to be given where credit's due with respect to uh, a lot of the work that they're doing. Uh, I also love uh, your take on the title, you know, versus sales development. Uh, Perhaps there's um, a consultant uh, term that's used in their title. And I just, I don't know, I, I like, I like where you're going with it. Yeah. No, thank you. I appreciate it. No, I think it's a great description because I think that's one of the issues that people are talking about. It's just, you know, why do we make that position one that has to be endured um, and sort of a rite of, of horrible passage as opposed to something that's, to Hard's point, extremely valuable, member of the team that's the initial point of contact with the prospects. Yeah. Too few companies I see actually have career paths for for SDRs. I mean, it's looked at as this sort of, hey, this is only a job a a young person can do because we make it so intolerable, uh, as opposed to, gosh, you know, why not hire somebody that's in their 40s or 50s that that is really good at that? That's right. Yeah. I mean, we pay, pay pretty well for people to do a good job in them. That's right. And to Howard's point, you know, if you've got a list of, you know, precious logos on your target account list. And uh, this representative, uh, you know, that's the term we'll use right now. Uh, they, they make that initial call and they haven't done their homework. They're not prepared. They're not, they're not uh, thinking win-win or, you know, doing proper diagnosis. Not only are you out the door, but you're potentially out the door for two years, three years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you yeah. know, these are logos that could potentially change the trajectory of your company. Yep. And if you blow it in the, in those initial calls or that initial call, it's, you know, it's really, uh, it's going to have a negative effect on everybody. You want to talk about systemic impact. There it is right there. It's funny when you said the word representative, right? I actually love that word because oh, that's cool. what they are. They're a representative of your brand, of your company. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah. shouldn't they behave as such? They're, they're contacting someone on behalf of you, your company, your brand, your mission, your values. You're asking them to represent you to the world. And if they're not representing you in that way, maybe they need more training. Maybe they need more education or maybe they need to be shown the door if they're not coachable. If they don't have the skill set, the curiosity, or the interest because they are your representative. So I actually love get rid of all of it. They are a representative. Yeah, 100%, Howard. And I'll take it a step further. You know, uh, life is a series of temporary events. They're not going to be on your team or in your company forever. There's going to be a day when they go represent you and your culture and your company and our profession elsewhere. So you want them to be a shining example of what they learned while they were on your team. Uh, so that that representing part goes far beyond uh, the time that they're with your company. I love it. All right. I love it. We're changing the name, the title. Change the no couple more SDRs. <laughs> representatives. I love it. Cool. Solution representatives. Solution. Yeah. yeah. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So shout out to the representatives out there. Shout out to the representatives. Right. All right, Ralph, we're wrapping up. If people want to, uh, two things, want to get in contact with you and they want to learn about where Segway is playing next. Uh, how can they do that? I love it. Thank you. Uh, best way to find me and to learn about our band uh, is ralphbarcy.com. Uh, I do my best to show my work. Uh, I feel that uh, there's nothing more important than giving back uh, to our profession and our community. So uh, if you go to ralphbarcy.com forward slash show your work with hyphens in between each word, you're going to see uh, a lot of the conversations I've had with people in the industry like Howard and Andy. Uh, you could also contact me directly through that website and learn about the band through that website. So I encourage you to visit and sign up for my mailing list if you want an email every couple months. I'm not going to hit you every week with an email. <sighs> And Ralph, anybody that's listened to Ralph's prior appearance on the show know that he's a voracious reader. And so great book recommendations as well. Thank uh, you. Howard, people want to contact you. LinkedIn Howard Brown or RingDNA or soon to be revenue.io. Yeah. <laughs> that means uh, when are we airing this show? You tell me. <laughs> After a certain date, I guess. Ralph, you're under NDA. All right. Thank you very much. Ralph, it was so great seeing you spending time with you, Andy. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll look towards the, uh, we'll look forward to the next time. Absolutely. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guests, Ralph Barcy and Howard Brown, for sharing their insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or every listen to podcast. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.